I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Robin Farzad. Robin Farzad hosts the weekly program, Full Disclosure, on NPR One, and is a special correspondent on PBS NewsHour. Born in Iran and raised in Miami, he's a graduate of Princeton University and Harvard Business School. He was a senior writer for Bloomsburg Businessweek for a decade and has appeared on CNN, NPR, CNBC, MSNBC, and CBS News. He's here to talk about his book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. This book is about the Mutiny Hotel in Coconut Grove, Miami, Florida. This hotel was the inspiration for the setting of the Babylon Club in the film Scarface and is a place that I have a special relationship with. For more, check out its website, hotelscarface.com and follow Robin Farza's podcast, Full Disclosure, on Apple Podcasts and fulldradio.com. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Full D Radio. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A-2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Do you have any place in particular that you want to start? Should we start with the end of your book? <laughs> I don't want to give I don't want to give that part away, but that's the part that I wanted you to get to. So, you know, okay. for us to connect. <laughs> so, where do you think we should start? Anywhere in particular? Let me turn it around and say I'm fascinated that someone reached out from that era, where I, you know, not to spoil the book or anything, but when I discovered it was in the early '90s in its state of utter disrepair. 
and that you lived there and knew it intimately. And revelation to me that that Trent Reznor and um, you know uh, Marilyn Manson would party on the roof where cocaine kingpins used to party. Are you kidding me? Yeah, exactly. My friend, the the way we connected with them was that um, my friend Jessica, who set up the bed there and everything, uh, she had somehow, I mean, she's a beautiful goth girl. So she had somehow hooked up with someone in the band that plays with Nine Inch Nails. So we, we, we didn't have Trent Reznor there, but we had the other guys from Nine Inch Nails. And we did have Marilyn Manson and all the spooky kids there. And it was all around the same time. It was like 93 must be like when they got signed or something. I think they had played like on Miami Beach, like Washington Square. I don't know. The the whole time period is a little It's a blur. It's a little hazy. I I remember with friends being at that, you know, it's it's gone now, but the Cocoa Walk area, which had all these chintzy, you know, uh, tropical drink bars and Dan Marino's Sports Bar and Grill and later the Cheesecake Factory. And from the balcony of this this setup, you would just see the apparition of this abandoned tower fenced around with its with its uh, antenna collapsed and the garage collapsed as well. You know, Hurricane Andrew was in August of ninety two, and it really did a number on what was left of that edifice. Yeah, exactly. That makes it make sense. So I'll I'll start with saying that. Well, first seeing the Cocaine Cowboys when that film came out in like 2006, I think it was. I left Florida in 2007 and it was like right before I left, I saw that film and I was like, oh, my whole life is making sense right now. <laughs> and yeah. then discovering your book just a few months ago <clears throat> and reading this, which everyone should get, especially if you're in Miami. One of my friends, I, I told her about it. She was also around at that time. She's like, oh, I have that book in my guest room for my guests to see on the table when they come over. Um, it's so funny. But yeah, this like really puts a lot of things in perspective and like puts like, I love how you how you lay it out and you talk about the political history of the time and then these different kind of people's life trajectories and how like one built onto the next. And it really helps me like situate myself within like this kind of place and time frame as well. Because before, you know, before just a few years ago, I, I really was just like, I didn't put any of this together. We, we knew that the mutiny... When we lived there, we knew that the mutiny used to be this like old disco hotel that had all these like weird themed rooms, but we didn't know the extent to which it was what it was. Do you remember the number on your room specifically? Ninth floor, nine what? There was no rooms. It was totally blown out. It was just like uh, cinder blocks. The whole cinder place. block, but it had its own door. There was no doors. Wow. There was no doors or anything. No, it was all like just like cinder block blown out it was not like rooms it was like i wonder in a past life it was the bordello suite if it was moroccan (laughs) dreams you know 130 different themed rooms yeah we know the designer talk talk about the rooms gosh the cappuccino suite um marrakesh uh you know it's I, i got to interview the owner the founder of the place burton goldberg and he passed away in 2016 he was loosely kind of the hugh hefner of Miami, but he was this accidental nightclub mogul and he had the dumb luck, not dumb luck. I think, you know, I, I think, I don't know, there must be some kismet to it. He built this, this complex in 1968 called Sailboat Bay Apartments. And it was just this sterile combination condo office concept that was really great. And he was gonna use it as a beachhead to take over Fair Isle, you know, Grove Isle. 
uh, but the city thwarted him. He didn't grease enough palms and everything. And so he sublimated, and I, you know, I took psychology in high school, that's about it. He sublimated that frustration into becoming a nightclub mogul in the early 70s. And what a great time to do that. If you resolve by 1971, you know what, screw it. I'm gonna rename this the mutiny. They were looking for a nautical theme. And he, he told me I would call it the sex hotel if I could. I wanted a hotel for swingers. I wanted something that dealt with the seduction of the swinging 70s and reefer madness and boy meets girl and everything. What happens in 1972 is you have these nominating conventions that come to town. You have uh, Richard Nixon's best friend, Bibi Rebozo, uh, has a suite at the hotel. And he's coming in between Key Biscayne and uh, you know, the marina at front of mutiny. You have the Super Bowl bound Miami Dolphins and all this international press descending on this place. And shortly after that, you have the oil shock, which floods Miami with all sorts of, as I said in the book, you know, Venezuelan and Gulf shake horn dogs. So he adds this restaurant and this club and piano service and everything, and it just explodes in popularity. And throughout the 70s, the, the Cubans and the Puerto Ricans envy the, 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 the moneyed Venezuelans there, and they're trying to get into the place at one small bar and dance floor turns into two floors and three floors. And before you know it, it's the Studio 54 of Miami by the end of the decade with 130 different theme rooms. He realized that the business, instead of becoming a real estate mogul, he says, I wanted to cater to the business of seducing the Latin American male. So if you had this adult fantasy land, you'd come to this place, you have mutiny women would serve you, you'd have you know bottles of Dom Perignon, you'd have uh, uh, people would party for blow and for everything. And then on top of it, more than 120 different themed suites, like a perverted Epcot center of sorts. <laughs> and so how do you, you know, how do you even make that up? One last thing, doctor, um, as a recording studio next door, Bayshore Recording, where the Eagles and Joe Walsh and I mean Fleetwood Mac would come through, you throw in a suit more than a Susan of celebrity and all of this stuff combusts with cocaine money and here you have one of the hottest hotspots on the planet. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so you talk about this as well in the book. <clears throat> My parents are from the hippie generation that was just before this, right? So like when my mom, my mom like left home in like the age of 17 and she's like took care of herself and, and lived in the Grove from then on. So mm -hmm. 17, she, that was 1960. And yeah. so she, she worked at this place called the Gaslight and yeah, the famous. Gaslight, yeah, the Gaslight had like a sister place in New York. And so like all the acts would come down from there, yes. uh, like Bob Dylan and Patti Smith and all these people and um, she used to live with Stephen Stills, like as her roommate and David Crosby. I, if I ever say like he lived with them, she'd be like, he crashed on our couch. He never paid he crashed, anything. He crashed, he crashed <laughs> on everybody's couch. Crosby and Nash wrote a song about the place called The Mutiny at Sailboat Bay. Uh, so did uh, Neil Young when he broke up with them. He wrote Midnight on the Bay on a cocktail napkin and he performed it for the staff in his suite. And a lot of people mis mistook both of them for hobos. That's the amazing part. Uh, Cosby was Crosby was so free based out. If you read his autobiography, he just they thought of him as like the lost dog of Coconut Grove. Um, it's really a different time and place. Women would sun topless in Peacock Park. Used to have roosters running wild. It's it's very different from what it is today. Yeah, very different. And then the the house I grew up on in was on Douglas Road. 
Uh Um, So like where main highway hits Douglas Road, you can go left or right, right? So my head was just to the left. And um, I went to St. Stephen's, which is the like little elementary school with the little church right across the street from the mutiny. So then to read this would be like, this is what was going on across the street. And like Peacock Park was like where we had PE and like played kickball and softball. Kickball and and softball and all this (laughs) stuff was going on in there like right across the street I'm like hmm, that makes a lot of sense <laughs> um yeah and then basically as I told you and after Hurricane Andrew Hurricane Andrew I mean totally destroyed Miami and it totally destroyed the house that I grew up in and my mom just kind of like lost it um and she like divorced my dad and just basically kicked me out so I was, it was like, it was um, 1993, like right when school got out, like May, 1993. And then um, that's when I met my friend, Jessica, who I already knew from being in the Grove because I was already like hanging out at the park. Like teenagers used to just hang out in the park all the time. And yeah, stuff. yeah. Um, and then she's the one who had set up that kind of spot. And she actually grew up in, uh, in at Dinner Key. Like her parents grew up, she, like she grew wow. up on a boat. On um, a boat. There are a lot of people like that, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people like lived in the boats in the marina at that time. So she grew up there. And then by this time, her, her mom had a house that was like more towards like going down 27 to Coral Way, like down there. Um, but yeah, she ran away like really young when she was like 13. So we met up when I was like 15 and she was like 14. And she just had like incredible survival skills. And she's the one that set up that place. I think she I think she had tried like a lot of people slept like on the bottom two floors, like on the first floor and the second floor, there's a lot of, as you say, like people smoking crack and stuff like that um, on the bottom floors. And she she said nobody would bother to climb up to the ninth floor because it's just like way too high. <laughs> well, let me ask you what I, I want to, I want to revisit my seeing the place in 1994. And as I said, it was, it was owned by the, um, it was critically, it was part of the wreckage of the savings and loan crisis, which is now an ancient crisis where this bank, this notorious den of iniquity was owned by Uncle Sam by the late 80s. You know, the, the bank that owned the mortgage on its Sunrise Savings alone was a notorious blow up. And so the government was a reluctant owner. It shuttered the nightclub by the, you know, 1986, 1987. And then when it couldn't sell the whole thing, it shuttered the whole thing. The hotel was closed. What, where would you walk in? Would you walk into the front entrance through the chain link fence and you'd go up the stairs? There was no husk nothing left of the club or the discotheque no we walked in there was like miami subs on this side and then where the fence started like after the miami subs and stuff you could get in that way and get into a stairway but there was no vest there was no vestige of the nightclub or restaurant on the first two three floors no everything was totally totally gone it was just like that stairwell that stairwell to the pool that stairwell to the second floor, that was no longer there. That They built the club. You know, the, the club was built on with a staircase in the back by the pool. It was all gone. Yeah, I don't think I had a really understanding of what it looked like because wow. I never I never <clears throat> saw it before. I only saw it this way, you know? Um, but it's I just crazy. remember we would go through the fence like and go right out to the Miami subs and then you could get... <laughs> I know this because also when you go to the Miami subs, first of all, we would like steal the paper cups and like go get soda. <laughs> Yeah. And then second of all, they had the, the their owners, The owners were friends, by the way. It's, a, it's that small of a world. <laughs> yeah. And then they had um, their bathrooms were like right there by their like kind of little yeah. back entrance. So we would, that's where we would like go to the bathroom all the time. 
or or we would like bathe ourselves at Cocoa Walk in the movie theater bathroom on the ground floor. The movie theater back back from beneath the escalators. I could place it perfectly. Yeah. Um, and what's amazing to me is you could just go Google Newsweek Miami's Grove of Crack. That's what it was known for because I think the tennis star Jennifer Capriati was found smoking crack in a motel nearby. In I was Grove. there that night. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> With That's her? so funny. Yeah, my friend, I don't know if I should say his real name. I don't know. He's probably dead now. His name was Mark. My friend Mark was dating her and we did not know that it, it was Jennifer Capriati. I actually like when, so in 2007, after I left uh, Florida, I moved to California from my postdoc after school. And then I worked there for a year and then it was like the economic collapse or whatever. So even though I was supposed to like have a job at this university counseling center, they were like, sorry, we're cutting the whole, the whole program. And so I was like, well, what do I do now? And they're like, well, you can collect unemployment. And I was like, I just got a doctorate degree and you're telling me to collect unemployment. So I was like, pretty pissed off at that moment in my life before I found a job in New York and moved there. Um, and so I started like reflecting on the past and stuff and writing a lot. And I started writing down all these memories. That was one of them was the, the night with Jen. And, um, uh, and um, then I had to be like, like these stories that I have are like so insane and surreal that I'm like, is this real? Or am I just like, have I just like if made up this whole down, life? If you don't write it down, that's what a lot of the obituaries <laughs> of the place said to me. They said, one, I can't believe I survived it. And two, I can't believe I lived it. If I don't write it down and tell you, the older I get, the more it's kind of occupy that gray area between, am I recalling it or imagining it from a dream, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I spent this time, like these six months where I was unemployed, uh, in California, like writing and then Googling and seeing like, are these real events or have I like made things up and stuff? And then I've been able to verify. I got to ask you. So you timestamp 1993, 1994. In the 13 years between then and say you leaving Miami, you cleaned it all up, went from squatting in the mutiny to getting a postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> like how, how did you do? I got to ask. Survival instinct. So how long how long did you squat at the mutiny and then who did you move in with? Well, I ended up my friend Jessica, she's the one who just died last year, as I mentioned as well. Um, she never went back home. She she left and she was on her own from like age 13 on. Um, I ended up going back to my mom's house. Uh, at like the end of 93, like around when, the time when school started. So I was only actually homeless there for probably four months, which is a long time when you're 15 years old. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I went back to my mom's house and then basically my mom left. Um, I don't, I still don't understand what she was doing. I think she went to, um, she went to Texas. I don't know. Basically she ended up somehow getting involved with the guy who was like hired to fix up the house, like the contractor or something. And then he lived in Texas and she like basically went to Texas and I was basically alone in my mom's house for all of 11th grade. So this is between 10th and 11th grade. Hurricane Andrew was August of 92. The day before was <sighs> Lollapalooza 92, by the way, because um, that was significant in my life. <laughs> I finally got to go to a concert, went to Lollapalooza. And then like my boyfriend, Mario's parents picked us up and they're like, oh, this hurricane's coming. And then like my entire life changed. Um, and then 10th grade was that year and I was at Ransom. I went to Ransom Everglades for seventh through 10th grade. And then that year is when my mom kind of lost it, not kind of, did lose it. And then kicked out my dad and me, at, kicked out me at like the, towards the end of the year. 
And, so um, you stayed you stayed in this house and then you applied to college? You just went still? I ended up in community college. Wow. I went to Dade. Yeah. So I, ba- yeah. I went, it was a ransom 10th, 10th grade. And then after my parents got divorced, I didn't go to ransom anymore. I went to Gables. And then um, my mom basically was gone in 11th grade. Like she would come back for, I don't know, a couple of weeks and then she would leave again. <laughs> and there was actually also all these construction workers at her house, which I've never brought up to her, but it was, there was like construction workers, like her house was still under construction. And she like left her teenage daughter there with all these like strange men, which was very, I don't know. I just can't comprehend what was going on in her mind, but that's why I went into psychoanalysis <laughs> for many, many you get, years. You got an associate's degree at Miami-Dade. Yeah, I got, I started at Dade and then I moved to Tampa and I lived to basically get away from all of this. And then I lived in Tampa for like three years and that's where I finished with my associate. So it took me four years to get an associate's degree because I was working full time the whole time. Like I worked in, when I was in Tampa, I worked at, well, first I was a telemarketer <laughs> selling like botch cruise vacations that people won, like calling and telling people they won these cruise sure. vacations that they didn't win. And then that felt horrible as I lived in Clearwater. And then I got a job at Target and I worked at Target for like three years while I finished um, school. And then I realized after taking four years to get an, an AA, I was like, I'm never going to get anywhere like this. So I actually did, which was probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life was I called my mom and I asked her if I could come back and stay with her and finish school so I could at least get my bachelor's degree, like not in another four years. Um, so I So I moved back to Miami and stayed with her. Um, but very quickly got a boyfriend and just moved in with him instead. Didn't stay with her for very long. And then, yeah, then finished at FIU with my bachelor's. And then when I had my bachelor's in psychology, I finished with that in December of 2001, uh, right after 9-11. And then, um, then the next year, in 2002, I started at Nova Southeastern University and got my PsyD, which is a doctorate in psychology from 2002 wow. to 2007. You're made of strong stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was survival instinct. 12th grade, I became quite a nerd. And I like started hanging out at comic book stores. And wow. that was very good. They, wow. also, they also did something <laughs> because I'll never understand other adults. Um, when I was at Ransom, I was really good at math. And I was set to um, take like calculus two or something in the way they had me scheduled in math. But then when I went to Gables, they didn't have um, all the math, all the different levels of math that I would need to graduate, but you had to have four years of math in order to graduate from a high school in Florida. So all of the adults got together and they were like, what, do, what math do we give Vanessa? She's already doing calculus <laughs> and she's already done this trig. And, and so they decided that they would put a 17 year old, um, they would let me, also during lunch, there was two lunch periods, lunch one and lunch two. During first lunch, I would sit in the principal's office and Tally, this is before sophisticated computers. This is 1994, <laughs> 95. I think I graduated, I graduated in 95, so one year after you. Um, they actually had me tallying whether people were absent, present, or tardy from their homeroom slips <laughs> every day. So I was sitting there entering people's attendance, and they decided that that would count as my math credit <laughs> to finish wow. high school. So basically for 12th grade, I was a nerd in that I, in the evening, but we basically meet my friends at school and go immediately to Denny's and hang out at Denny's until first lunch. 
<laughs> and then go wow. to first lunch in the attendance office and enter that we were all there. <laughs> and somehow never got in trouble for this. <laughs> wow. So nobody noticed because, you know, Gables, there was like a thousand kids in our class or something insane. So there was, yeah, no accountability. But anyway, I graduated. So that's a miracle, basically. <laughs> How about you? Where did you go to school? I graduated in 94 and uh, I thought I was leaving Miami for good. I, I, got, I went to Princeton in uh, New Jersey and everything. And this story haunted me while I was up there when I got homesick. Um, without, again, giving away the book, I would type that address, 2951 South Bayshore Drive, into InfoTrack, Nexus, Lex, Lexus, Nexus, anything I could. I just remember I had it in my wallet on a little uh, uh, post-it note or a little receipt. And um, it just came, it just kept coming up in news stories and informant records and uh, uh, police busts and, and, and all these characters kept emanating out of it. And I pick it up and put it down and pick it up and put it down. And I finally resolved, uh, gosh, 15 years later to put together a compelling enough book proposal to, to get it done. It, it always felt fraudulent for me. You know, I was four or five when most of this stuff happened uh, in the heyday of the mutiny. And so people would say, what business do you have going back there? What business do you have trying to conjure up an omniscience? But in many ways, it's kind of a, a love-hate letter to my hometown. You know, we share a trauma you definitely had a trauma centered there. Uh, in my case, I came from Iran in uh, the late 70s. My aunt was in medical school in Miami and it was a time of, uh, uh, of a lot of difficulty for me and my family. I didn't speak the language. I'd get pride off of my father every morning and drop off at, at the preschool. I didn't know if they were gonna come back. And I do remember it was a time of riots. There was a smell of an acrid smell of Miami burning. <laughs> at that time, even though we were in North Miami, um, uh, you know, the refugee crisis in 1980, the, uh, the race riots, the McDuffie riots. And like many people who left Miami, who grew up in Miami, there was always something unresolved about it. And I felt kind of ineluctably like I had to go back to that address. And um, I don't know, uh, I'm not given to phantasmagoria and that much of the supernatural, but there's something about this address. Yeah, there's something about that spot. That's what me and my friend were talking about. I, I talked to Jessica's sister and told her, because she wasn't there, she was younger than us, but she knows that we stayed there. And um, and I said, you know that somebody wrote a book about that, about that hotel? And she was like, no way, but of course. <laughs> She's like, there's just something about like the energy of that spot or something that it's clearly attracted a lot of something. <laughs> <laughs> something about something about that spot. Something else. I, you know, over 20 years, I just have had so many dreams that have taken me to the hotel, to the trying to imagine myself through the stories and the oral histories of people. And it was a, um, you know, without talking my own my own book too much, it's something that I'm just so happy and proud that I got to write the book that I wanted to write. There was always a commercial pressure to depict this place as a whorehouse or, uh, you know, a place with just sleazy slime bags and everything, but the ecosystem was largely observed. The, the, the cops most of the time didn't bust the cocaine dealers there. The hitmen, a lot of the bad things didn't happen at the hotel. It was just a place, it was a DMZ, if you will. It was a free trade zone, uh, international waters. And 
that to me, if you could find a place that lets you tell the story, if it's like a layer cake of Miami, how do you not tell that story? You know, there's a friend who got in touch. Um, I'm not going to call her out by name in case she wants her anonymity, but she came to the book party and she was from my high school and she found her adopted mom who was, uh, uh, who partied at the mutiny. And it was like borderline, I think, uh, uh, cocktail waitress at one of the other places, but was one of the party girls at the mutiny. And they bonded about it. And she told me a story. I think, I, I don't know if it was Steve Madden, the shoe designer or Steve Madden's brother was on a balcony with back then. And uh, he had a big cocaine problem and he hung around the Grove and everything. And he was freebasing or something on the balcony and he fell off. And he thought he was being sucked into purgatory because he fell. And as he came to, uh, he woke up and saw a bunch of naked people with animal heads <laughs> and looked up and sees a gigantic phallus and a gun. And the people no, in the jungle real. suite, the people in the jungle suite or whatever it is, are having an orgy. There's a lioness, you know, being mounted by someone else on the bed and everything. And these guys go up to him, like literally naked, but with an elephant head. And he's thinking, this is something out of. Fellini or something and, and they think he's DEA and he hears his girlfriend banging on the door banging on the door where is he where is he he's like he's, he's going to hell and the girlfriend comes in and is like no my boyfriend fell off the balcony and they're like do you want to get in on it too and they're like no no you know stuff like that that didn't even make the book you know belated stuff or uh, Crosby and Nash throwing money out of the balcony I'm not Crosby and Nash the Doobie Brothers um <laughs> And all the groupies. Uh, I interviewed a venture capitalist recently. He, inter he uh, invests in clean technology and he was a valet at the mutiny. I think he went to ransom as well. And he just remembers one of the kingpins getting out of his limo circa 1980 and this glass vial spilled on the driveway and everybody immediately fell and they put their noses to the driveway. Like you cannot make that stuff up. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you realize that there's a chance if you research enough of this stuff and if you embed yourself that you can have that story, um, it was brutally difficult to report and write, but I'm, I'm happy that I did it. I'm happy you did it too. It's really made a lot of things, a lot of things make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And I have like every, every page, well, first of all, I love your voice because it's Thank such you. a Miami voice and it's made me realize like, like I knew once, I didn't know when I lived there, like the Miami people have a certain way of speaking. But then when I left and talked to other people and then I would see a Miami friend again, I'd be like, oh, familiar. Later, I know this person. later. And the whole time later. I read your book, I was like, oh, this is so Miami. Like all the phrases yeah. you use and everything is really nice. It was really comforting and nice to and read. And again, I had, some, I had some fraudulent, I had some, you know, imposter syndrome issues with it. But it's really touching when people read that and say, you totally captured the aroma of the place, the essence, which is if you obsess about something enough, you could feign an omniscience, I guess, right? Yeah, but I wonder why you got obsessed with it. It's just so interesting. I, uh, you know, I, uh, I have to, I had to go back and reopen 1980 Miami. It was a really traumatic time for me. It was where everything that I've, I've spewed forth from that period, just like you can say 11th grade or 1992 and what happened with your mom and the terror of doing that. I, I, I haven't spoken with you all that much, but gosh, like, uh, it, it's what you're made of now. <laughs> you turned it around, you picked yourself up, you know, got the associates, got the bachelor, got your PhD, 
you're in the most enlightened planet country on the planet, you know? And by dint of, of social media, two ships passing in the night. For all I knew, when I saw the place, you were up there on the ninth floor with your friend. Yeah, I know. Well, the way you described it, I was like, that was us, for sure. Because there was that Eddie Money. <laughs> for sure, that was us. <laughs> it was Eddie Money, Eddie Money concert, I believe, at the Coconut Grove uh, Bed Race. I remember that day. Race. Yeah, absolutely. And I told my, the there's yeah. two Jessicas. There's the one who's passed and, and another one who's still around, thankfully. And I told her, I was like, he talks about this specific day. She's like, I remember that day. I'm like, I know. That because was what, hap what <laughs> happened was when I looked at the Vista and when I saw the attics and the goths and everything staring out from this mysteriously abandoned Bayfront property, which, why was it abandoned? Why was there a government tarp around it? And at that point, literally, as if on cue from Peacock Park, the late Eddie Money, I want to go back and do it all over, but I can't go back, God, no. And that was something about that. I, I see, I remember vultures in the pool. I remember Zima was a very big drink. Everybody was drinking Zima. Everyone was drinking Zima. And, um, and I just kept hubbing and spoking back to this moment. I mean, I, I've met people in Sedona and they talk about, they talk about it as a vortex city or something, but the corner of South Bayshore Drive in Coconut Grove is kind of my vortex place on this planet, you know? I do know. <laughs> so much has <laughs> happened to me on that corner, whether in the park or down. There used to be an area where Peacock Park was, is uh, where, the, where the baseball area is. Yeah, yeah. Now there's like all those townhouses to the right, yeah, but that used to just be yeah. all mangroves, right? Mangroves, and you used to yeah. actually be able to like walk along this little rock wall and like sit over there we used to sit over there and there was tons of kids like hippie kids and teenagers and runaways and stuff that would have tents in the mangroves over there in the park I used to sleep there too and um we called this little rock wall uh Stonehenge and we'd be like you want to go to Stonehenge wow. where we could like sit like not not in the you know open space of the park just sit like kind of back in the mangroves on the wall and we used to sit there and like you know just throw rocks in the water stick our feet in the water and hang out there do you know what was in the Anchorage back in the heyday of the mutiny? You, there was a billboard on the corner of uh, South Dixie Highway or US-1. I don't even know. I, I grew up in North Miami. So whatever the heck all that 95 converges into by Coconut Grove, whether it's US-1 or South Dixie, it's all exotic to me. Yeah. But everybody <laughs> tells me that notably at the exit where you would turn left east to go to the heart of Coconut Grove was a sign for the Moonflower Escort Agency. And... Um, you know, if you were an international high roller or something, you would call in, you would page Moonflower and get yourself a Moonflower. There was some chintzy line about it. But what's amazing is they had a yacht in the anchorage in Dinner Key with a dispatch operator and women and everything. And you could order, this is awful, but so transactional. You could order Venezuelan, mulatto, international model, everything. And it was all there to service the hotel from a yacht with cell phones and ham radios and everything. And it was busted in 1983, but this hotel, and I, I, I spoke to madams and various people, they would say, you would just jump at the chance to take a gig at the mutiny because believe it or not, more times than not, a lot of these, these uh, coked out heavy hitters, they just wanted someone to talk to. And they'd pay you $5,000 for the privilege and you might get a tiara or something gauche out of it and everything and and uh, you'd be partying with them the next night anyway downstairs there would just, just be um of course it became exploitative of course there was abuse of course but um especially pre-aids the the open transactional nature of this thing you know uh 
coke for sex, coke for blow, you know, uh, pay for play. Uh, it could be a mutiny girl or a, a, a bored housewife or a, king, a, a kingpin's wife or mistress who wanted to spite him, who wanted to go out and party. It was a completely different era. Yeah, and I tell people all the time that I'm from Miami, like cocaine in Miami is like weed other places, you know, it's, it's just as common, <laughs> Yeah, you know. Yeah, you get a lot of it. I mean, I spent time in the Hamptons and everything, cocaine there and, and Vail and in Aspen. Uh, but, you know, the way it all came together in 1980, and to take it back to this, the, the late founder, Burton Goldberg, what great luck to have erected something like that in the early 70s, because by the time reefer madness and cocaine madness at all kind of made Miami the capital of Pan America, all of this cocaine money was coming into the to the tune of a $5 billion cash surplus at the Federal Reserve Bank. One of the top students who was working there became a cocaine kingpin at the mutiny, incidentally, because <laughs> people wanted to rope him into money laundering. You, you couldn't resist the riches. I mean, if somebody told you, and if you were you completely devoid and untethered from ethics that, um, Vanessa, I got a hookup on the border between Peru and whatever. It's gonna get us cocaine paste for about $3,000 a kilo, $4,000. By the time I cook it and cut it and process it and everything, we can extract street value of about $300,000 selling it in Miami. Whether it's to some crack people in Overtown or Carroll City, whether it's some quality stuff for the most discriminating clients, by the time we all chop it up and process it, we will have plus or minus $300,000 in cash for you fronting me $2,000 up front. There are a lot of people that would take that risk and say, yeah, I do one or two kilos. I buy myself a house. I'll never do this again. But, but then they do. <laughs> they do. They do. And the, the amount of money, the, the stuff that was being bought there at a time of uh, economic crisis for the rest of the country, that the recession in 81, 82, the amount of inflation was very severe, but this place was an oasis away from it. And on top of the fact that Miami was blowing up, there were race riots. You wanna talk about the roof of the mutiny. One of the, one of the main characters in the book, Molly, Molly who discovered her sexuality there as a mutiny girl. <clears throat> she said, when the race riots happened in the McDuffie riots and uh, there were shots being fired all across Coconut Grove because Coconut Grove has it's called the Black Grove, the ancestral Bahamian community that serviced the hotel industry there in the late 19th century. They were brought from the Bahamas to be hotel workers. Mm. But then it turned sadly into an area of dereliction. And as it was being, as it was, you know, gunfire was going on, a bunch of people, you know, the bartender took a bunch of kegs and Katie barred all the doors at the front of the mutiny. And Molly and a couple of old, you know, Cuban uh, freedom fighters and everything snorted a ton of blow, went into the uh, champagne and wine closet, got out a ton of machine guns, took to the roof and started shooting at everything and nothing to defend the honor of the mutiny, right? It was lawless. And she remembers bullets ricocheting off of the uh, uh, spiral staircase on the roof and the antenna. And uh, I just remember metaphorically, someone says, I remember when that was happening and I was in my room watching uh, uh, grainy footage of Mount St. Helens erupting opposite uh, the United States from where Florida is, right? Diagonally opposite. And as the bullets are hitting the antenna on the thing, the footage is coming in and out of, of the nightly news. Like, what? Right? <laughs> Two sides of the United States are erupting. Um, I, I, and I, I can't believe that. No, no cop was going to venture into that place. 
the mutiny was going to defend itself, darn it, you know? And it, the fact that he had all these machine guns. And I found informant records that pointed out the manager who would hide uh, automatic machine guns and everything in the, in the champagne cellar. Like, what? And how the girls um, would put them in their dresses or whatever. Molly, Molly, <laughs> she knew if there were a cop coming in, I'd hide it under the cushion or under my dress. And, and again, she says to me, one, I can't believe I lived that. And two, thank God I'm alive. Yeah, a lot of my friends are gone, sadly. Um, yeah, there was a lot of parties on that roof, for sure. And yeah. and actually, when, when Jess was hooked up with, I don't know, the bass player, the drummer, some guy in the Nine Inch Nails band, didn't meet Trent Reznor. All my friends uh, were like, I know you met Trent Reznor. I'm like, I didn't. But <laughs> but we were in wherever he was renting on Cubus Gain. He had like rented some place on Cubus Gain. And it was, I guess he made the soundtrack for Natural Born Killers because we all got to watch natural born killers before it, uh, came, before out. it came out yeah <clears throat> which is pretty fun <laughs> this is critical experience now people would always say farzad do you think you did sufficient and i don't want my kids to hear me or anything but <laughs> did you think you did sufficient research and that you didn't try this stuff that you wrote about it? i was like you know what you could get me an ambulance and some paddles and you get me just enough that was sustainably sourced that no farmers were hurt in this and no solvents were made in it <laughs> maybe I'll try some, right? But you got to have the, the, the paddles and everything ready because I haven't tried it. Wow, you know? that's amazing. And all the reporting, it was offered to me and everything. Come on, have a bump. Let me tell you about the, uh, the there's, a, there's a human, there's a human, and it's called the anatomical snuff pouch. I can't tell you how many dopers told me, if you do this with your, the fat of the fatty part of your thumb connecting to your thing, you can make a little Coke spoon for just the perfect amount of food. I was like, great, news you could use. I'll put that in the index. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, now yeah. too, I think it's a lot more dangerous with this like fentanyl or whatever. Fentanyl that it's stuff, everything. Yeah. It's killing so many people. Yeah. You have all these dangerous. people telling me though that they say, I never thought I would try it. And then the first time I tried it, a lot of people would say just, it was described to me like you think you could save the world and you stay up all night and one of the nicknames for it was perico which is parrot because you stay up yapping all night and you want to change the world and you have all these ideas and everything and it kind of reminds you of uh you know marky mark dirk diggler and boogie nights and then no one the problem is no one wants to wake up in the morning to actually save the world and then by the time you wake up at five with a terrible headache you just feel dirty and you got it up and down, uppers and downers and uppers and downers. And, and, and a lot of people to taper off this would become alcoholics. And uh, there's still opioid dependencies. We've gone into, you know, the, the innocence really came off of this very quickly. Yeah, exactly. Especially with pharmaceuticals. A lot of people get into yeah. the pharmaceuticals after this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I feel like yeah, I feel like reading your book, it's like every every page, I'm like, I have a story about that. It's like all these characters from my life that I have like these weird <clears> tangential <throat> relationships with, you like fleshed all of it out. Like you said, the Jennifer Capriati thing, um, that that all the people that were interviewed, there's like a Sports Illustrated article wrote, it, wrote about that right after it happened. And like all the people that interviewed are all friends of mine. I fortunately have some sort of sixth sense. And like right before it got busted, I was like, 
gonna go and I was leaving and while I was like leaving I saw the cops come and I was like oh glad I'm leaving <laughs> and then my friend Mark brought me that Sports Illustrated article he showed up in my school when I was at Gables and brought it to my class and I remember looking at it that it was like, called Miami's, Miami's, Grove, so weird. Miami's Grove of Crack and then there's a Miami Herald article that Bill Clinton was visiting either in 93 or 94 and I remember the Coconut Grove Chamber of Commerce and the what is the Historic Society of Women, the Women's Club next right. door by the library? Yeah. They, they always complained about the mutiny, about its overflowing dumpster and the vultures and everything. And they say, this is embarrassing. Can we not drive his motorcade past the mutiny or McFarland Drive? Because a lot of these presidents, including George H.W. Bush, would stay at the Mayfair. Um, what's hilarious is we have very plausibly Pablo Escobar in the early 80s visiting the mutiny and ordering a dish in the back of the kitchen while George H.W. Bush was staying at the Mayfair a few blocks away. And these two, of course, would meet together in the early 90s as the, the war on drugs fully took shape, right? Mm -hmm. No, it's amazing. And you know, the whole history that you go into with like Peter Pan and the Mario Boatlift and Bay of Pigs yeah. and how all these guys were like kind of brought in by the CIA to go back in the Bay of Pigs and it felt abandoned by, by the U.S. government. Yeah, and then I don't know, I throw sublimation around loosely, right? If you're anxious or depressed or have unfulfilled, I don't know, sexual desire, that people will say, I'll run a marathon, sublimate my thing to it. Maybe I'm not using that correctly, but I was going to call a third of the book sublimation, right? Where the anger and the unkept promises and, you know, Castro was never taken out. We could sublimate it into precipitation in the 1970s with all this coke coming in. I said, why be poor, dude? You know, the U.S. screwed you. Go go and make some money while we're waiting for Havana to fall. Uh, and of course, Castro survived how many presidents? I don't know, like 10. <laughs> a lot. But, you know, it was a high-class thing in pre-revolutionary Cuba. It was the high-class people would do cocaine. They would call it postre, just pastry. Um, you'd see it like on a little ivory saucer or in a governor's mansion or something. And it had the highest uh, consumption of of cocaine in the world pre-revolutionary Cuba. So it was a it was an indulgence that was brought to Miami, but little bits of it. I mean, you might find like saffron, right? You don't you don't find kilos and kilos of it, right? Yeah, and that's another connection, the mob connection, which is a big thing in Miami and of course was in Cuba and New York. And how you said that the Bert Goldberg, his dad had had a part in the hotel in New York that Lucky Luciano. Yeah, yeah, you can look it up. It was called the Navarro. Uh, on Central Park South. And it's where it's in a book called Havana Nocturne, which is in some ways the prequel to this, how the mob won and lost Cuba. A lot of gangsters would party there uh, with with the Beatles, um, with Rolling Stones and everybody else like that in the 1960s. But uh, Miami was ripe for this. Miami had the mafia, already had a bunch of people taking out hits, the Jewish mob, the bookie wars, the Italian mafia by the 60s and 70s. And these guys were natural allies of, of uh, the foes of Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro broke up the mafia, you know, um, smash the slot machines of the mob-owned casinos in the streets of Havana. And, and people like Santo Traficante and these other US crime bosses were working in cahoots with the CIA. And all that stuff has been uncovered and uh, unclass declassified over the years to take out Fidel Castro. They had all these harebrained schemes to assassinate him and no one succeeded. And I think that it was a very powerful thing to say, okay, you know, by the time Jimmy Carter is president, he's not really prioritizing, you know, gung-ho, let's go back and take out 
Fidel Castro, a lot of these guys turned to pot and cocaine smuggling, and they said, we'll bide our time. And they did get a second chance, you want to talk about sublimation, with the Iran-Contra crisis. And a lot of these same people were the ones who gladly sold cocaine to fund arms to the Contras in Nicaragua. They saw that as a proxy fight against communism. So I like to say that this hotel was where the sexual revolution met the cocaine wars uh, and uh, Iran-Contra and the savings and loan crisis, all of these scandals crashed into one another. Yeah, no, you really tie everything together so well in the book. And now I'll have you have to tell me what that book was again, uh, the prequel, and I'll have to read that one too. <laughs> Havana, Havana Nocturne, you would love it. Uh, TJ yeah. English, I love him. I've had him on my show. Uh, he just gets it. He gets it really well. Um, and it, I don't think a lot of people realize that, that uh, this was Vegas in the Caribbean, Cuba. And a lot of these guys wanted to come here. And, and they tell me wistfully, some of these dopers, like, the mutiny was for us what the Tropicana Casino or something would have been if Fidel Castro wasn't there. It's like a continuation of what we had, um, that life, that scene and everything. And of course, it was replicated in the movie Scarface. You could pull up the screenplay, Oliver Stone's screenplay. And there are many times that he wanted to reference the Babylon Club, which was a fictionalized version of this. And it was he mentioned the mutiny. And as he described the mutiny, two, three floors of converted apartments with various bars and bands and women in specific cocktail outfits, the kind of the thinned out blonde look and everything to, a, to, you know, all of these different things that he incorporated in the movie. And of course, the owner did not want him shooting at the mutiny. Um, the, the Cuban dopers hated the idea that you were going to caricature Cuban refugee, a Mariel refugee, as this violent villain. But what's funny is as they got out of prison in the mid 80s and as this movie took on a legendary following, a lot of them would say, you know, I'm Tony Montana. Yeah, that was about me. I love that. Yeah. How they're all like, this is about me. <laughs> yeah, to, the, to this day, they're like, bro, I'm Tony Montana. Cause you know, I had a cougar. Like that's it, you know, I had a cougar. <laughs> He's really a composite of a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that either. That totally blew my mind. I had no idea no. that that was based on the mutiny. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too much stuff. I mean, he stayed there, they researched there. He himself was coming off of a crippling cocaine habit, Oliver Stone. And um, a lot of these characters look the same. The phone, the phones that were plugged in at the table, if you try to compare the Babylon, everything. But ultimately so much of this production was kicked out of town that he had, most of it was shot in SoCal. Um, it was so controversial uh, with, I think there was a Miami-Dade assistant commissioner or something who passed an ordinance and said we want to change the script to make tony montana an agent of fidel castro and everything <laughs> so it's it's kind of hilarious you remember ralph rennick right um, so ralph rennick the most famous person i think in miami news history the elder statesman of uh was a uh, cbs the affiliate or something he would sit at the bar just drinking himself terribly depressed out of the mariel crisis and um he was he he had this commentary. He just exhorted Miami commissioners to stay out of the business of Hollywood. We need this business. We've been a war zone for two years, and um, I just think it's hilarious that he too was sitting at the bar at the Mutiny Daily before his newscast and and taking notes. It's amazing. Now, what I did was after I finished your book, I watched. I had seen the Cocaine Cowboys film like in two thousand six or something when it came out. Then after I read your book, I watched the new one that's on Netflix. 
And it was really nice to put like faces to all the characters. Like I knew everybody from reading the book. And I was like, okay, well, that's this person, that's this person. It mentioned the mutiny ever so briefly in episode one. Those guys, the Kingpins were saying that you knew when somebody's load came in because they would put the Burger King crown on their table. Um, but they also wrote the intro to my book. They were very kind about that. Yeah, it was nice to put faces to everybody's names. Yeah. And then you mentioned the Bee Gees too. I was, I, there was a period of time where I was friends with Barry Gibbs' son, but I didn't know it was Barry Gibbs' son. He was just like some skater kid on Miami Beach. And then one day we went all back to his house and we like go through these gates and like down this long driveway with like all these trees. I'm like, where are we going? And then we walked into this guy's house. I mean, he was like 30 skater head, long hair in his face, you know, 90s grunge little kid. And then we go in his house and uh, and there's like gold records on the wall and there's like white BG suits, you know, from Saturday Night Fever or whatever. <laughs> like these white suits frames on the walls. And I just went, well, your dad must really like the Bee Gees. <laughs> and well, so my mommy was like, his dad is the Bee Gees. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh. And the funny thing is my teenage mind, this is when I was even younger. I must have been like 14, um, <laughs> 14, 15, somewhere around there. Um, uh, the thing I remember the most, one, was actually getting lost in the house <laughs> because it was so big and there were so many rooms and I mean, it had been a little off. Um, and they had like intercoms where like they started talking to me like, Vanessa, where are you? <laughs> They're like, push the button on the wall, find one of the intercoms. And I was like, what? Talking to me. That was funny. And then the other thing I remember about their house was um, the kitchen and how they had like these pantry closets that like line the whole kitchen and this really long island and the island had like all these glass jars of different kinds of candy <laughs> like m and wow. and Reese's and Snickers and there's just like kids dream you know it's like jars and jars of different kinds of candy so was, one of the one of the main dopers uh, that house is on Kibis Kane right yeah one of the main dopers in the book had a house next door to the Bee Gees and would um either Robin give or someone loved to come and tour the uh, covered covered boat garage that these guys had. Dopers loved, it was a it was a reason why Coco Plum was kind of elevated because you could build a garage for your boat. You mm. could bring loads in more discreetly if it was covered. Mm. Um, so, you know, some of the other interesting things about the cocaine economy down there, they also noticed that uh, this is this is your, your crew kind of, McDonald's was running out of its spoon-tipped coffee stirs. And the central office in Chicago had to write and say, why the heck are all these restaurants running out of these coffee stores? Because kids would wear them in 1980. It was this ironic thing, especially if you could get it gold dipped and everything. It was the perfect thing for portioning out cocaine. And they turned it into a flat paddle instead, right? Um, that's that's just stuff that you can't imagine. Um, yeah, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, I remember yeah. seeing Cocoa Plum after the hurricane. And I remember seeing like, I have friends that live there. There was like literally like boats like on the second floors of people's houses because yeah. they had gotten like thrown up. Cocaine, cocaine plum, it was nicknamed. A lot of dopers lived there. And a lot of dopers would just shuttle back and forth to the mutiny. It was just down the road. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, thank you for writing this book, Robin, and for talking with me. Was there anything oh, that we didn't get welcome. to that you wanted to mention? There's so many things I could talk. I feel like I could flip open every, every any page. Well, hold up story. that cover because I, I regret it. That that cover was forced on me, the, the Europe cover. They, for some reason, thought that the cover that you see most of over here was yeah. something that people wouldn't understand. But uh, that's not that's not me. It's kind of this bullet, bullet oh, flying yeah. thing. But they said it was more for a sensibility there. Originally, they had a razor blade. 
a European razor blade with a <laughs> South Beach behind it. I was like, no, this is not. And South Beach didn't even look like that in 1980. So it's very hard communicating the aesthetic and the time it plays to people. Like, you know, I, I do TV appearances and everything. They're like, he's here to tell us about the illicit South Beach hotels and mutiny. I was like, no, it's not South Beach. It's, it's the Grove. You know, the, and like the, you the said, Grove South, at a different time and place. South Beach then was like, it was Nothing. not the South Beach that people Nothing. think of. It was like retired people. See, you, you know, and you should see that thing on Netflix. <clears throat> it's called The Last Resort. It's about uh, the photographer, Andy Sweet. And he covered South Beach and it's kind of final throes of dereliction um, in the late 70s and early 80s. He was sadly murdered in the early 80s. Um, but people, to this, you know, this day, I go home to Miami. It is absolutely unrecognizable. They call parts of Biscayne Boulevard, the Upper East Side and Midtown and Wynwood and Little Hades, all the rage. And there's something called Ironside. I'm writing about a time and place where really there was this place in Coconut Grove and there was a discotheque in the Omni. And South Beach was an old age home. It's a very different place. Now you talk about tech and all these New Yorkers moving, uh, but you could plausibly say that modern Miami started out of this peculiar vortex address <laughs> that I, I've obsessed over. At the mutiny. No, yeah. because we when we skipped school, we would actually go to the beach because the police would not look for us there. Like if you skipped school and went to Dadeland, they would find you. Like they those kids you. in Dadeland, yeah. they'd be like, no, you can't. So we would go to South Beach because nobody would go to South Beach. It was yeah. like, no, no one would bother you there. You just go hang on the beach all day. There wasn't anything by the to do, but you don't need anything the, to do when you're 16. <laughs> so by the time I was in high school, it was either, do you want to go to South Beach or the Grove? That was the kind of the binary of, of it, you know, and the Grove was Cocoa Walk and the, 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 the stereotypical, you know, Mexican guy with eight parrots on his shoulders and a, a margarita bar and everything behind it. By then it became caricature, but Coconut Grove is one of the oldest parts of Miami. It had the, the you know, one of the oldest hotels and the oldest municipal meetings. It was annexed by Miami in the 1920s. And so much of what you see today kind of emerged from that ooze. Well, and that's the thing too, that when, um, after the hurricane, after Hurricane Andrew, you know, the Coral Gables got fixed up really fast and like around Coconut Grove, but because it was like unincorporated Dade County or something at the time, it didn't like have, it didn't get as much attention. And I remember going right. to school like in October and we still didn't have like electricity. It was just like insane. Yeah. Months later. There was, there was one postscript. I mean, a regular at this place was OJ Simpson in the late seventies. He was, he was having terrible injuries and he was bouncing from team to team. He partied a lot there, did a lot of blow there. Um, and after he got out of prison, uh, you could go look it up in the New York Post. And the hotel opened after years of a very sterilized corporate hotel today. Nothing like what it was back in the day. But he wanted to check in. And it's, it's kind of sad. He made a sex tape there. Oh, my God. I think in 2001 or something. And it kind of fell on deaf ears. But you have this, this idea of wanting to revisit the glory years, the promiscuity and pre-AIDS and everything. And it's just such a shell of its former self. Um, I have to tell you where the room was that we stayed on Planet Nine. It was when you went to the back of the hotel and like the Miami, it's still the Miami subs corner. It's like all the way, yeah. when you go in now, all the way to the back, to the left, that very back corner. That's where that picture is taking that I sent you. Uh, very back corner left. So the view is like looking right out at Peacock Park and like the, the marina there. That's where yeah. the bed was. 
Um, I actually can only talk about this now because I think because I'm finally in my own house. I'm in a different country and me and my husband just bought a house like in May. And so I finally like own my own house and I'm safe and I'm here in Sweden. And now it's like, and then my friend died, of course, it was, was murdered. Um, and so it's like, I was thinking about that time anyway. And now that we've come to our own house, I finally feel like safe and I can talk about it. But before this, I like never talked oh. about any of this. So this is like all very new for me to talk but about. What a small world it is that I noticed your post on Twitter and we direct messaged each other. And, you know, starting off from Miami, plus or minus the same year of high school and then traveling this far and 25 years later, 27 years later, here we are talking over the ether. Yeah. I just so think that's amazing. It is amazing because I also, which I think I wrote in that post, I never do these like that feeling when posts. I don't ever talk about anything personal really online because I am a therapist. So like, you know, people can Google me and, you know, I try to just keep things work based and work includes art and things that are weird and magical things and whatever, you know, but it's all kind of work based. I never talk about like how I'm feeling personally or if I'm mad about an issue or anything like that really. Um, and that was literally the first time I'd ever done that. I was like, this is too amazing to find out that this book exists, but I have to make yeah. a post about it. <laughs> and then for you to like respond, I was like, whoa, not expecting that. <laughs> well, there are, there are other people that will have memories from that era. I mean, it's one that I couldn't report very well because a lot of people were on the download. A lot of people have died. Yeah. You know, what are the chances of someone that, you know, you were just passing through at a terrible phase in your life, but you put it back together and you maintained a presence of mind and you stayed alive. I mean, your, 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 your friends, sadly, tragically, I mean, imagine the memories you would have had if we were in touch with her a year ago or two years ago, but it's, it's so, it's such a treat for me. I know that is something I thought of. I really wish that she could know that this exists, this book and you and talk to you too, because I think I would really like be healing for her and like her to hear yeah. more and like to situate her life in this kind of time as well. Cause I don't think she really, understood all of that kind of perspective of what was going on and we were just yeah. we were just surviving you know and I think that yeah. happens to a lot of people you don't really know what's going on sociopolitically when you're just like going to work and eating making sure you can eat you know no, um, it's amazing yeah and I, I think that's also I mean of course someone getting killed anytime is a tragedy but I think that's why it was extra tragic was that I really thought that we like were past a phase where something like that could happen, could happen you know yeah. and for this she was breaking up with this guy and for him to do that to her just like is yeah there's no words for it but um he killed himself too so they're they're both gone so if if I if he was here I could be mad at him but he, he's not here either so it's just like so somehow that happened and it's already happened it was halloween weekend last year so it's been almost a year already which is also incredible oh wow yeah yeah but um anyway i like to think maybe maybe her spirit's around and she can hear us yes. <laughs> and i made a lot of art about her um yeah and keep and i'll keep her spirit alive i've written down a lot of these stories and uh and i'm gonna make some sort of book out of it and i don't know that i'll call it like a memoir but i'm gonna like make it kind of a surrealist book where it's like going in and out of scenes and it's like what exactly is happening in this scene and then like goes into another scene kind of make it creative in that way so it's uh yeah 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 there's a lot of stories there's a lot Great. of stories when you grow up in miami it's true <laughs> and I love the way that you phrased it the ambivalent relationship we have with it yeah 
to be truly from Miami is to have a love-hate relationship with it. All right. So should we stop with that? Sure. Well, it's so nice to talk with you. Thank you. I'm glad we're in touch. Yeah, exactly. We can talk again another time. Yeah. Next time I'll <laughs> give you a co-payment. Oh, they don't have co-payments in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's on the house. <laughs> so they'll pay me they'll pay me and sell send me some ligand berries too or something no just every trope i could throw at you you're in a good place yeah i am in a good place thank you for listening to rendering unconscious you've just heard a discussion with robin farzad for more just check out his book Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. You can visit the book's website at hotelscarface.com and check out his podcast, Full Disclosure. Just visit fulldradio.com. Subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts and follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Full D Radio. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R A W S I N underscore. And now, a new song from an upcoming album. The album is called The Cutting Up of Language and Love. And the song is called Ivy and Sally at the Mutiny. The album will be released on Bandcamp soon. It's a collaboration that I did with Pete Murphy. You can check out our previous albums at highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com Enjoy! Ivy looked around the room. She and Sally had set up a spot for themselves on the ninth floor of an old abandoned building. It used to be a disco back in the day called the Mutiny. The Mutiny. Here it was anarchy. Anarchy. We called our place Planet Nine. Sally had set up a corner of the world and had welcomed me into it. Planet Nine. Planet Nine. Planet Nine. Planet 
Nein.